this is a very difficult part of the book of Joshua to start preaching on for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's really hard to break up the chapters. Like, for example, today it's all of Joshua 9, so it's a long passage. Uh, but but I'm, even so with that, this is part one of two sermons called Grace for Gibeonites. <clears throat> so question for you, when you first came to God, when you first started realizing you wanted to become a follower of Jesus, and other than desperately wanting mercy and forgiveness and grace, did you know what you were doing? <laughs> I mean, did you immediately that day display perfect repentance? Everything was just right, right? Did you know exactly how to pray, what to do, where to go? Yeah, and in addition to that, the church is a place that we've learned where sojourners or newcomers should be able to turn to for guidance and direction. Who should know better? We also seem to come to God in the wrong way many times as Christians. <clears throat> it's a result of longtime followers of Jesus who come to God in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. And it affects newcomers, making them come to God in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. What happens is, like after we've been in church for a while, even we as Christians and sincere followers of Jesus, we begin to look for ways to work the system. To do things to maybe consciously or subconsciously get God on our good side. Hoping he begins to grant us these selfish blessings. <clears throat> we even sometimes subconsciously begin to abuse prayer, asking for things like, I don't know, personal vengeance, or even, sadly, more sadly, political retribution. You know what? We should know better than to use prayer for things like that. And between ignorance of newcomers and how flawed the church responsible for teaching new followers about Jesus can become, it's a rational thought to ask this question. How does anyone have a chance to find God? How does anyone have a chance to actually truly, in the right way, come to Jesus and learn to follow him? Well, the answer is, yet even with all that, God's grace, by his sovereign power, always intervenes into his beautiful, epic story of redemption. Today we see an example of that in Joshua 9. Bear with me, it's a longer passage, but we have to read it all. I tried to divide it up three different ways and it just can't be divided up, okay? <clears throat> this is after they have worshipped with the sojourners at Mount Ebal. Do you remember that? The, the people from other nations who were coming to join Israel. Once all the kings beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland all along the coast heard of this, they gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard about Jericho and I, they acted with cunning and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and worn out torn and patched wineskins and worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. They made sure all their provisions were dry and stale. And they went to Joshua at Gilgal. And then they said, Go to the next screen for me. We have come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. 
But the men of Israel said, you might be our enemy. How can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua asked, who are you people? Where are you from? And they said to them, oh, we're from a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. We have heard of him and all God did in Egypt and to the two Amorite kings on the other side of the Jordan River. So our elders and the inhabitants of our country, they said to us, take provisions for the journey and meet them and say, we are your servants. Come make a treaty or a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses for the journey. But see, now it is stale. These wineskins were brand new, and see, they have burst. These garments and sandals are worn out from our long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. In other words, the men took the word of the provisions. The provisions convinced them that they were from far away, but they did not ask God's counsel. So Joshua made a treaty with them, or a covenant, to let them live along with the elders. Three days later, they learned that the Gibeonites lived nearby. <laughs> the people of Israel set out for all their cities near Gibeon. But Israel didn't attack them because they had sworn to them by the Lord. And all the people, the nation of Israel, murmured against Israel. We see mob mentality starting to come here. They're angry. How could you take this treaty from the Gibeonites? The leader said, we swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. We'll let them live or wrath be on us because of the oath we swore. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you? You didn't have to do that. You could have just joined us. Why would you say you're from far away when you dwell 10 miles from us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. Some of you shall never be anything but servants, lumberjacks, basically, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. You're going to work for the temple that we're going to build years to come. They answered Joshua because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all this land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. We fear greatly for our lives because of you. And we did this thing. Now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good in your sight to do, just do it. It doesn't matter. Joshua will do whatever you say. We just don't want you to kill us. So he did this to them, delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them cutters of wood and drawers of water for the people and the altar of the Lord to this day. You can see it's a long passage, but it's a fascinating story. Many people call this the Gibeonite deception, but I think that sells short what this story is really about. First of all, once you see the history in this passage, we see frightened kings all over the place, right? So the word has spread from the mountains to the coasts into the hilltops about the military victories that had been won by Joshua and Israel. The destruction of those powerful Amorite kings on the other side of the Jordan before they even crossed the river. They've heard stories about the fall of Jericho, and the destruction of the forces of Ai and Bethel. And so now all the kings in Canaan are terrified of Israel, especially the stories of the miraculous power of God that seems to be with them everywhere they go. 
And perhaps more than fearing Israel's mighty men, which was a definite fear they should have, they fear what God did for them at the Jordan River. What God did for them at Jericho when he made these thick walls just collapse with trumpets. What God did to them at the city of Ai. Yet instead of letting their fear lead them to repentance, those kings form an alliance, choosing war over worship. They've seen God's power. They know Israel can fight. They know God is real. But for some reason, stubbornly, they choose to fight God over worshiping him. We see that throughout the book of Revelation, do we not? It's always the response of those who do not have ears to hear, those who have not been given the gift of faith when the gospel is preached. They see it as ridiculousness, and they respond with stubborn, foolish refusal. But there's a different group. There's the Gibeonites. And instead of calling it the Gibeonite deception, I'm calling it Gibeonite desperation. See, the Gibeonites, knowing they can't defeat Israel, especially with God on their side, they create this ruse to manipulate Israel into a peace treaty. And unlike Achan, who was a Jew, by the way, who tried to hide his sin for greed, you remember that? The Gibeonite deception is really motivated by fear of God and his power and his judgment. And no doubt the Gibeonites had heard how God had commanded Israel to accept strangers who desire to worship God. Everyone had heard that. This is why this story about the Gibeonites comes after Rahab and the story of the sojourners worshiping with Israel at Mount Ebal. So the Gibeonites send representatives disguised as weary travelers from far away with the worn-out, tattered clothing and the stale bread. They claim they've traveled for months, and we were inspired to make this journey through stories about God's power. We just want mercy. We want to be a part of it. They're just weary sojourners who desire to worship God. And Joshua and the elders of Israel buy it. They believe the deception. Without consulting God, they make this covenant, this treaty with the Gibeonites to make them a part of Israel. They treat them with hospitality and love and kindness for three days, just like they did Rahab and those sojourners who became followers of God and worship with them at Mount Ebal. You know, the only part of the story that was a deception was the part about being far away, right? The rest is true. We've heard about God and what he, what he did and what you've done, and we're frightened. That was all true. The only part of their story that was a lie was saying, oh, we're from Egypt or from far away, and we've just come. That was the only part of the story that wasn't real. But three days later, the deception is uncovered. And by the way, if you Bible geeks, yes, there's a reason it's three days. I'll just let you know that, okay? It's not a coincidence. The deception is uncovered after three days. And so soon after the treaty, the Israelites discover the Gibeonites are from 10 miles away. You see the map I put up there for you. It's not that far. They're 10 miles from the city of Ai. And the people of Israel are angry. They're mad at Joshua and the elders. They want the Gibeonites killed for this deception. But Joshua and the elders feel bound and 
necessary to honor this treaty, even though it was made under false pretenses, they feel like they have to keep this treaty in the name of God's command to welcome strangers. The reason they welcomed Gibeon is because they had been commanded to do so. You remember, they were instructed early on before they even went into the land of Canaan. They have always been instructed to be an open nation, to welcome strangers. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that that of all the commands in the Bible and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all that stuff, the most important command, the most often repeated command throughout the Old Testament is welcome strangers and sojourners who want to worship me, make them a part of Israel. It is the most important command that Israel had. This command to welcome strangers always superseded any other command that would be to destroy enemies who refuse to repent. As a matter of fact, this command existed before they even crossed into Canaan. It carried on after, and in fact, for God's people, you, it extends to us today. Breaking the treaty that was made in the name of God, in other words, in the name of that command by God to welcome strangers, breaking that treaty, even under false pretenses, would damage Israel's testimony and reputation among the surrounding nations of being welcoming to those who want to worship God. That's the problem. That's why they have to keep it. So confronted with their deception, the Gibeonites gladly agree to become servants performing two menial but critical tasks going forward, lumberjacks and water carriers. The men probably became the lumberjacks and the women began to carry the water from the wells and that's the history of this story and what happens. There's some beautiful theology here. I've called this section Divine Purpose Prevails. First of all, I want you to see there is human wisdom involved in this and that's the problem, right? <laughs> There's human wisdom here. The Gibeonites believed in God they knew his promises to Israel were true, and he was keeping them in real time, and they were afraid to not be a part of it. They understood, even believed in God's authority and God's power. This is why they were going through all this trouble to pursue a treaty with Israel. The Gibeonites seem to be repenting. Maybe not elegantly, <laughs> And maybe their repentance is motivated by fear rather than grace. But they don't know any better, do they? You see, the Gibeonites had never been taught about the mercy and grace part of God's covenant with his people. They didn't know that they could just come to God openly with saying, look, we're from 10 miles away. We just want to join you. They didn't know they could come to God openly in humble confession and repentance with hearts of worship. They didn't know. And ignorance forces them to rely on human wisdom. If they wanted to escape judgment, we have to deceive God's people and trick them into letting us in. The problem is Joshua and the elders also relied on human wisdom, didn't they? They knew something was off. Who are you people? And they should have sought God's guidance right away. But they didn't. In fact, Joshua and the elders, because they did not seek God's guidance, watch this, they missed a beautiful chance to teach the Gibeonites about God's mercy. But they didn't even bother. 
It's tragic. And not only did they not teach the Gibeonites about God's mercy, it's even worse. After they catch the Gibeonites in the lie, they take advantage of the fear and manipulate the Gibeonites into becoming slaves. What a disgusting, dysfunctional mess. Sounds like the church sometimes, doesn't it? (laughs) Do you see how both Israel and the Gibeonites committed the same error? Faith and human wisdom over God's wisdom? So let me ask you. This is a tragic story. Who do you think actually bears more responsibility for the tragic way that it ends? The Gibeonites or the Israelites? This is not the Gibeonite deception. This is the Israelite failure. That's what this story should be named. But we see there's God's purpose. I love Romans 8, 28. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. Some of your translations might leave out the word the, but actually in the Greek, the word the does appear right before the word called. It's important to see that. The details are critical in reading scripture. So sometimes I have to tell you, like stories like this and some of the ones we're going to see in the next few weeks, sometimes the Old Testament is written in a way that tells us what happens without really telling us exactly why it's important. Right? This is a troubling story, but if you don't really take the moment to look at the history and the theology of the passage, you're going to think, well, that was weird. But there is powerful theological truth here. God's plan for the Gibeonites could not be theirs or Israel's. Don't overlook how this story comes right after the one about strangers coming to worship at Mount Ebal with, Jesus, with, uh, with the Jews at Mount Ebal and the story of Rahab, the prostitute who becomes a part of Israel. Think about it. Every circumstance is working against the Gibeonites becoming part of God's people and part of God's covenant with Israel, right? Everything. Humanly speaking, they should have faced the same fate as the people of Jericho and I and many others will study in the next few weeks. By the way, did you know that later on, many years later, as the Gibeonites have already been entrenched into Israel's culture, did you know that King Saul, inspired by evil, when the scripture says that, that Satan had entered Saul, Satan or Saul, inspired by evil, hated the Gibeonites so much, he tried to have them all killed. The story's in 2 Samuel 21. That story right there is proof that Satan was fearful of the crucial role the Gibeonites would play in God's plan of redemption for you. The fact is, neither Israel's failure nor the Gibeonites' fear and deception would derail God's purpose for his people and not even King Saul who tried to kill them all. Despite all this, right, despite all these things working against the Gibeonites becoming a part of the people of God, despite all of this, God transforms the Gibeonites from deceptive, frightened, filthy pagans into crucial people in God's history. When Solomon built the temple, there is incredibly strong biblical and archaeological evidence that the Gibeonites played a critical role cutting the pieces and processing all the wood necessary. 
The Gibeonites became much more than lumberjacks and water carriers over time. They take on critical roles to support the temple. In fact, later on in Scripture, we learn that the Gibeonites are renamed the Nethanim. That word in Hebrew means dedicated or consecrated ones. They took pride in their temple service. Even in Israel's darkest time during the Babylonian exile, when they were all taken out of the land of Canaan, the Nethanim remained dedicated in service to the people of God in their worship of Jehovah. And after the Babylonian exile, Gibeonites are actually listed among some of the first people to return to rebuild Jerusalem, its walls and its temples as the lumberjacks. Isn't that beautiful? And it almost didn't happen. Actually, there was never a chance it wasn't going to happen. So that's the theology. Let's look at the personal section. Aren't we all Gibeonites? This is the sermon preview this week. Even when God's people do everything wrong, God's grace will always succeed in making it right. Amen? Aren't you glad? The path of the Gibeonites coming to God through their deception and Israel's failure wasn't ideal, not by a long shot. And despite their dysfunctional history with God and God's people, God would not allow any of it to derail his plan for them. Let's imagine, though, for a moment, let's just hypothetical exercise. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario where Israel actually handled it the right way and consulted God. God, these people, they've come to us. They say they're from far away, but it doesn't look like it. Who are they? You know, what if Israel had responded to the initial Gibeonite deception brought on by ignorance? What if they'd responded to it with wisdom and love and truth? What if Joshua and Israel, in their initial suspicion, sought God's wisdom about how to handle them? How do you think God would have handled it? Joshua, kill them all. You think that's what God would have said? Like he did at Jericho and other. They're different than Jericho. These people fear God and they know he's real. Or do you think God might have said, listen, Josh. I like calling him Josh. That kind of modernizes, right? <laughs> they aren't like the people of Jericho. They actually believe I am the one true God. But they know of my wrath. But they don't know about my grace, my mercy, and my love and my patience. Because of this, Josh, they you in Israel to do, Joshua. I want you to tell them that we know exactly who they are. We've known them before the foundation of the world, in fact. And they don't need to be afraid. Because I have led them to this place today. There's no need to sneak in or manipulate your way into my covenant family. Tell them they are welcome. Just repent and believe. Let Rahab the prostitute teach them about how by faith she had nothing to fear. Introduce them. Tell them to listen to her story about when she chose to join my people. Let her Rahab, teach them what it feels like to be an outsider who was welcomed and transformed and made part of my covenant family. 
After that, I want you to introduce them to those sojourners that worship with you at Mount Ebal, who also by faith left their homes, some close by, some far away, to become worshipers of me with you. Then I want you to teach them, these Gibeonites, about my unconditional love for my people, how I will never leave you or forsake you. Wouldn't that have been a much better way to handle it? Isaiah 56, 8, look at this passage. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Isn't that beautiful? The Gibeonites are a case study on how God works through his people to call his chosen despite us or them. Let me say it again. The Gibeonites are a case study of how God works through his people to call his chosen despite us or them. No matter what, God's grace always meets his chosen wherever they are and brings them to where he wants us to be. Over time, we see what happened. God wove the Gibeonites into his plan of redemption just as he weaves each one of us into it. Flaws and all. See, God knows the heart, circumstances, and motivation of every individual he has called out of darkness into light. His justice is unwavering, but his mercy is just as vast. And when you first came to God, did you do it perfectly? Did you all of a sudden overnight become an expert theologian? Wow, all of a sudden I know ancient Greek. How did that happen? <laughs> did you fully understand God's mercy and grace? Did you fully understand the gospel? Did you pray the perfect prayer, display perfect repentance, integrate perfectly into the people of God on your first try? Did you immediately see perfectly who God is and immediately dispel all the wrong ideas you had about him and the word of God that you'd had all your life? Or did God's grace save you despite your flawed approach? Is he still transforming how you approach God to this day? You still probably aren't very good at it, are you? I'm just going to tell you, you know the best part, or at least one of the best parts about being the pastor, particularly of this beautiful church family called Grace Life? It's just watching how God gathers all of us, a church full of former, filthy, deceptive Gibeonites. <laughs> Some more filthy than others. <laughs> why, why did everybody look at Scotty? I don't understand. <laughs> you know what we are? You know what we are? We are a family. We are a family made of people who came to God in all the wrong ways. We've come on pathways that, humanly speaking, should have never brought us into God's covenant family. Not only that, by the same grace and mercy, as he is calling us, he overcomes all the flaws in our precious little church working through us anyway. Newcomers to Jesus aren't the only ones who make mistakes when they come to God. Like Israel, longtime followers of Jesus make them all the time, every day, too. Yet, 
For some reason, God works despite all that. Making us, former, filthy, flawed, deceptive Gibeonites, this beautiful conduit for his gospel and his grace. Saving newcomers despite ourselves. And in this process, he transforms each Gibeonite into an indispensable part of our church family. And they become, oftentimes, very quickly, people we just couldn't live without. So today, some of you are here like the Gibeonites. You're brand new to this whole follow Jesus thing. You're not sure what to do or even how to do it. I mean, you know God is real. You know you desperately need his mercy. But you're afraid. You do not know what to do next. Listen to me. That's okay. You are welcome here. In fact, we are just as nervous about what God has called us to do as you are. I promise you, as your pastor, I'm nervous. And that's why, as leaders, we seek God's wisdom, praying that God reveals to us how best to welcome you into our precious family. What we don't know, we will learn with you. As God's unstoppable purpose and grace weaves all of us Gibeonites together into his beautiful, precious plan of redemption. Dear Jesus, we are so thankful that you make it very clear in this story that you never work because of us, you always work despite us. You never save us because of us, you save us despite us. And Lord, we we don't want to use that as an excuse to do whatever we want and to be unrepentant. No, our desire to show our gratitude drives us to repentance and to change the way we live and the way we speak and all of those things. But even with that desire, it is so evident we constantly are drawn away and come to you in all the wrong ways. But yet somehow your grace seems to prevail Every time you bring in new sojourners who hear the gospel and by the power of the Spirit of God, you bring them into our covenant family. Lord, I'm so thankful that you give us the privilege of being involved in the process, but I'm also thankful that it's not done by our power. So, Lord, I think it might be good for you if you would just remind us. Maybe we start getting a little full of ourselves or maybe we start trying to work the system. Remind us that we were all sojourners, Gibeonites, who were far off. But you, by the power of the grace and mercy of the gospel, have brought us near. Thank you for building a beautiful, redeemed covenant family out of former filthy pagan Gibbonites.